I long for the day when we are ready to do a five-year series in one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Um, as you probably know, they are massive books, uh, and, and I would encourage you to spend much time in them, for without them you will not understand many of the uh, allusions in the New Testament. Uh, in, in Revelation alone, there are 440 references to the prophets. In Revelation 9. So if you want to understand Revelation, ditch your newspaper and read the prophets. Because the newspaper is not going to help you understand Revelation, but the prophets will. Uh, because what is going on in Revelation is echoing the language of the prophets. Anyway, that was a side note. Uh, we, are, we are in the New Covenant after looking extensively at the, last, at the five Old Testament covenants. And uh, we have a bit of work to do over the next two weeks, and then, uh, and then really my encouragement is just keep wrestling with the covenants, keep, keep thinking about how the Bible is teaching us uh, about these covenants when, in your own time, and keep having discussions. It's, it's a good thing to be talking about the Word of God uh, in, our, in our casual settings as well. Uh, but hopefully this has been a good intro to covenant theology. So we're in Jeremiah 31 this week, and we're going to look at verses, uh, I don't have it written down, 27. I'm going to read from verses 27 to 40, but we're going to preach, we're going to really unpack only 27 to, to 34, um, 33 actually. All right. <clears throat> Chapter 31, verse 27, and I'll read to 40. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten our sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on, the, uh, set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, Who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for the, night by, for the light by night? Who stirs up the sea that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If, he, if this fixed order departs, <coughs> sorry, 
<coughs> if this fixed order, <coughs> if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offering of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Haniel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go forth straight to the hill of Gabi and still and shall be then to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook of Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall, the sac- shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for guidance and his spirit to lead us as we unpack this passage in the new covenant. Holy Father, your, uh, your words are too wonderful for us. They're too glorious for us to behold. Yet you have removed the veil from our eyes, the veil that was over Israel, and, and you allow us to see things clearly through Christ. Lord, it is with such beauty that you remind us that as you have fixed the sun, the moon and the sky and as far out of reach as the exploration of the deeps of the sea and the foundations of the earth, so certain is your word. What beauty is in your language, Lord, that we behold and sit in wonder May we grow to understand this beautiful covenant that you have with us and have had for all eternity. May we see redemption. May we see hope. May we see a lasting city and an everlasting garden. May we see pain cease and suffering extinguished. May we see the fear of death leave us forever and ever. May your name be exalted and sinners humbled and holy living promoted, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's easy uh, when reading the Bible to get to the end of Malachi and feel like the story has ended. uh, And that Matthew starts this new story, a very different story. And the reason I think we think like this is because the times have changed significantly and language has changed and culture has changed, uh, which means there's different phrases, there are different words that, that, that mean uh, the same thing as, as words, that, words used in the Old Testament. 
But if we are truly honest with ourselves, when reading the Old Testament, this happens within the Old Testament as well. You read the law, the first five books of the Bible, and then move on to the prophets, which is some 2,000 years between the two, you are going to see, once again, a very different culture, very different language. And although they use different words, they are actually meaning the same thing. The example I gave last week is that uh, the words nations, peoples, coastlands and Gentiles all mean the same thing, except they are used in different time periods. Mostly in the law, we'll see phrases like nations and, and peoples. Uh, in the prophets, we will see nations, peoples and coastlands all referring to the same group of people. And in the New Testament, we'll primarily see Gentiles. What is this referring to? Not Israel, the people outside of Israel, the people that weren't a part of God's covenant to Israel. Uh, and we, we, we may see this in, in other areas as well. As we have gone through the covenants in the Old Testament, we've seen that the language of be fruitful and multiply is consistent, but it slightly takes different shifts. We're going to see that today in this passage as well. It's important to remember that the New Testament tells the end of the story for the Old Testament. We cannot, we cannot understand the New Testament unless we know the Old Testament. There will never come a time in our life where we can part from the Old Testament like some preachers have said we can do. Uh, reading the Gospel of Matthew without the Old Testament is like reading the last chapter of a novel. And although when people come to faith, we encourage them to spend some time understanding the Gospels and who Jesus is, I think that is right and good. We should, like Hebrews encourages us, not to stay on milk, but progress to solid food. So coming to the end of Old Testament, uh, we have to come and, and, and ponder what the New Testament is saying about the Old Testament. And Jesus asks this question to his followers. He says, who do people say that I am? And the answer is, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, the first two, Jesus corrects. Jesus uh, Jesus reveals that John the Baptist was the forerunner and that he is, in, uh, he is the Elijah who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. But he doesn't really correct about Jeremiah and the prophets. And what's interesting is that when we look at the language of the prophets or compare Jesus to the prophets today, we paint the prophets quite aggressively and Jesus quite soft. Yet... The listeners of Jesus in his day referred to him as Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The people who heard Jesus speak, physically heard him speak, saw the similarity between the prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus. Now the, the name that they choose is not Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea, but they choose to name Jeremiah. There was something about the way Jesus spoke that made them think he was Jeremiah. There was something in his message that sounded like Jeremiah's message. Well, what is Jeremiah known as? The weeping prophet. He was the prophet who 
saw doom and destruction. Isaiah had it rough that no one would listen to him and Ezekiel did some very strange things from God's mouth. But if anyone, if anyone experienced such great suffering, Jeremiah was it. Jeremiah is, is the one who would go forth and speak destruction of, the, of, of Judah and exile. He would experience it as it happens. Babylon will come in. Nebuchadnezzar will come in, drive them out. And all along, he's getting beaten and spat on and put in prison by his own people. But the people listening to Jesus say there's something about Jesus that sounds like Jeremiah. What did Jesus speak? Well, Jesus spoke of the end of the temple, Matthew 24. Yet in the midst of Jesus speaking about destruction and judgment, he also spoke of the hope of the new covenant and the language he uses we saw last week the gospel of the kingdom jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom so as we look at jeremiah 31 to 33 over the next two weeks we're going to spend time here in jeremiah 31 next week we're going to spend our time in jeremiah 33 we're going to keep moving back and forth between the new testament and these passages to try and make a greater sense of the new covenant. But what's important for us to notice is that the new covenant is made up of all five of the old covenants. And we're going to wrestle with this uh, over the next two weeks. This week, we're going to see how the Adamic covenant is part of the new covenant. We're going to see the differences between both the new and the old covenant because this passage tells us I'm making a covenant that's not like the old. So what are the differences? And this passage will also explain those differences and we summarize them in two points. Uh, Law-loving hearts, not rebellious hearts, and a multitude, not a remnant. Law-loving hearts, not a rebellious heart, and a a multitude, not a remnant. So let's start with the Adamic covenant in the new covenant in uh, verse 20, uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 27. <clears throat> Jeremiah is famous for his line, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Yet the verse before it says, right before it, 70 years, after 70 years of exile will be complete then i know the plans i have for you that is uh the context of that passage we have to be uh we have to be aware that that was not written to an individual that was written to a nation and it was written to the people of god that although they are about to go off into exile for 70 years so although jeremiah is going to die before they return God says, I know the plans I have for my people. I struggle so much when people apply that to their own personal life. It is about God's people. And God's people will prosper. God's people will come to their promised land. God's people will uh, fill the earth and subdue it as God planned in the beginning. But we have to be okay to understand that maybe in our life, maybe our 70 or 80 years it's going to be hard work. 
Maybe we're in a season of God's kingdom building where life is just tough and people are just wicked. Maybe that is our journey as well. We don't know as to what God will do in the future. But for Jeremiah, that was the case. His life would be spent speaking of doom and destruction and speaking forth a hope that he won't see in his physical life, but only in the spiritual world will he see it. So picking up in Jeremiah 31, 27, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. At this point, Israel... Uh, Israel and Judah haven't been one nation since King Solomon. So King Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. He's a fool, weirdly, considering Solomon wrote Proverbs. Uh, But his son is a fool, and his son listens to uh, youthful counsel rather than uh, adult, uh, uh, rather than wisdom from his older men. And the kingdom is divided. Israel is the north, the majority kingdom, and Judah is the south. And it is a remnant of Israel. And it's through Judah, of course, that God preserves them longer than he does the northern kingdom. But here God says, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, uh, I will sow with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. So the first thing we see is God is going to restore Israel to be one nation. But what we have to understand about the northern kingdom of Israel is it has it has never really come back. They have gone off and they've become, uh, they've, they've mingled with the other nations. So when we think of the northern kingdom of Israel, we are thinking of a multicultural uh, kingdom, multicultural part of the people of God now. In the New Testament, they are the Samaritans. And we know that the Jews hate Samaritans. Uh, well, Jesus, uh, well, Jeremiah here is saying, Uh, from the mouth of God, that he is going to bring the northern kingdom back to Judah. And we see this in Acts 2. In Acts 2, Israel, it's Pentecost, and Peter stands up to speak. And there's people from all over the different places who have different languages. And that is the house of Israel, who is now multicultural, coming back together with the house of Judah. uh, And they are becoming one again. And not only one, just, the, just with those two, but all the nations that we see described there are becoming a part of God's kingdom. And it says here that they are going to be sown uh, with the seed of man and the seed of beast. He's speaking in garden language again. This is the Adamic covenant within the new covenant. We don't throw out the Adamic covenant because, or, or any of the covenants we'll see over the next two weeks because God has had a purpose and a plan that he will have a people who will fill the earth and his image will fill the earth. And in the beginning, in the Adamic covenant, we read that he, will, uh, he said to both man and to beast, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God is still committed to that. Speaking in garden language, he says, I'm going to sow them with the seed of man and the seed of beast. I'm going to spread them out. But he continues on and he uses more Adamic covenant language. In verse 28, 
He says, and so shall it be that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. So the first part is God has never left them. Although Judah and Israel have broken the covenant and walked away from God, God has never left them. God has been there to watch over them in every breaking down, in every overthrowing them to the other nations. Every time they've been destroyed, God has been there. His hand has been working it out. It wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar that came up with this great idea to go and conquer Judah. It was God who planted it in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind. It was God who gave, <clears throat> gave him a, a determined time and a limit to his own kingdom so that he would be conquered one day as well. We see so clearly that God's hand was involved in every aspect of the tearing down, the breaking, uh, the breaking down of Israel and Judah. Essentially, his hand is involved in all discipline of his people. And then his, his promise is, as I watched in those days, I will also watch over to build them and to plant them. In the Adamic covenant, we see Adam charged with these two roles, the kingly role to have dominion and <clears throat> to, to have dominion and to subdue the earth, to fill the earth with the image of God. And he has the priestly task to work it and keep it, to extend it and to protect it. And God is now saying, I will take those on. I will watch over you. I will build it. In other words, I'll expand it. I'll work it and I'll plant it. This garden language is not accidental. It is Adamic covenant language. It's to say that coming soon, in days to come, God is going to establish a new Adam who is going to be the seed of man and he is going to cause the seed of man to prosper in God's place, under God's rule. It is echoing that the son of David is going to be the one who watches over the people of God, who plants and builds the very thing that Adam was to do, yet Adam didn't do. But there are differences as well with the new covenant. And next week when we get to Jeremiah 33, 14 onwards, we're going to see very clearly that the different covenants are all incorporated in the new covenant. This week, we just looked at the Adamic and we're going to look at the differences. What are the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant? There are some, as Cody pointed out a couple of weeks ago. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 40. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new covenant is going to consist of a nation being built and planted and, watch, uh, and watched. Unlike Eden that, got un, that became undone, we are going to have a new place that will be firmly guarded, not by man, but by a God-man, Jesus Christ. But we can fall into a huge danger. And the danger that we can fall in when thinking about the new covenant and the old covenant is we completely separate them. We go... It says here in verse 32, not like the old covenant. 
Therefore, we think that it's absolutely not like everything from the old covenant is thrown out. We get to the new covenant and all we think about is what uh, it says in the New Testament. But that's not what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah states in verse 32, not like the, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It's actually very specific. If we read that language, it's not completely different. It doesn't completely throw out all the old covenants. It only states one of the five covenants. And it's the covenant with Moses. It's the covenant that they made when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant they broke. Remember, the Mosaic covenant was a wedding ceremony. In chapters Exodus 20 to 24, uh, God presented his vows, the law, and Israel came and said, Yes, Lord, I do. And, he, and they say that twice in chapter 24. Uh, and they are bound to God. And he even stated in the passage we read that I was their husband uh, in, in verse 32. Uh, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So we see there is a There is a difference in the new covenant and the old covenant, but it's not a completely overthrowing of the old covenant. The new covenant is made up of all five of the old covenants we have gone through. So when we are wrestling with what's different about the covenants, we have to ask the question, well, what does the passage actually say? And I believe as we keep reading on, we find out what's different. Verse 33 tells us, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, let's start with the end of this verse. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, this is consistent covenantal language that we've seen through all the covenants. If we go back to the Abrahamic covenant, we see this in Genesis 17, 7. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. Uh, God, is, God, is, <coughs> God has said to Abraham that he is going... If we, if we remember the context of the Abrahamic covenant, it comes straight after the scattering of the nations in Babel. And in the scattering of the nations in Babel, God then turns to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, but you, Abraham, I'll make into a nation who will be my people and I'll be their God and from you all the nations will be blessed. Abraham is the beginning of the redemption plan of the nations and it is a long redemption plan all the way through every other covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and finally the new covenant where we see this once again fulfilled in the book of Acts, Acts 2. The nations come back to God in Pentecost and then deliberately, if you read through the book of Acts, it it deliberately mentions certain people from certain nations who come and bow their knee to Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, uh, and the Macedonian who calls uh, calls Paul to come and preach to him. What Acts is doing is reversing the Tower of Babel. It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where we see God promise that through Abraham the nations will be blessed. 
Well, not only is it mentioned in the Abrahamic, but even in the Mosaic. So the very covenant that he has said it will not be like uh, has elements that will have the that, that that will have similarities as well. Exodus twenty nine forty five says, "I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God." Deuteronomy reminds us that Israel is his treasured possession. The whole covenant with. Uh, with, with Moses was that they would be his people and he would be their God. So it continues to cause us to wrestle with what are the actual differences when Jeremiah says, not like the covenant I made with your fathers, what are the differences? Well, it comes down to the law. It comes down to the place of the law and how we view the law and what the law does in our lives. Because clearly what we see, the promises to Abraham, Noah, uh, sorry, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses and David ultimately all end in the purpose of God, which is that he'll have a people of faith who live in his land under his rule. That is a firm covenant that trails from eternity past to eternity future when God has established his kingdom forever. So I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is the difference. This is the difference right here. The difference is that we will be law-loving people and not rebellious in heart. Jeremiah many times, up to nine times, writes, but this people have a stubborn and rebellious heart. So in order to know what Jeremiah is saying here in 31, we can't just read it isolated from the rest of his writings. When we read the rest of Jeremiah, we see how often he mentions the current heart of Israel, uh, Israel and Judah, the current heart and the current situation. So when we actually get to verse 31 and we say, and we read that this new covenant is going to not be like the old covenant but it's going to put the law in us and write it upon our hearts. It's deliberately saying something about the change that's going to take place in God's people. Nine times he says, you are stubborn and rebellious in heart. So something's going to change in the heart of God's people. The law is going to be written in them. Israel did not have the Holy Spirit. Israel... Uh, had the same heart and desires as their father Adam. And we did too until we experienced Christ. But because Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, he put the righteousness of the law in his people. Firstly, he declares us lawbreakers, but the righteous fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law so that we could be claimed as righteous. What we have to understand is Jesus obeyed the law, right? That was the difference between us and him. Jesus Jesus was made righteous through his obedience to the law. He didn't break it. So what we couldn't do, Jesus did on our behalf. Therefore, the law is not just thrown out and said, I don't care about the law. 
Jesus loves the law with all his heart. He obeyed the law. He did every single one of God's commandments all his life. Every moment and every thought and every action was in obedience to God's law. So we have to, as Christians, really wrestle with the law of God today. Because our modern Protestant gospel is often lawless. It doesn't uphold the law of God as it ought to. It doesn't call us to obedience to God's law. We are afraid of mingling faith and works. Yet the Bible isn't afraid of that. Whether we're in the book of James or in Paul's writings of Romans or in the prophets here, the Bible is definitely not afraid of mingling faith and works. Read Romans 1-4. to And multiple times it will, be sa- it will say you'll be judged by your works. And then you get to Romans chapter 4 and he will remind us that our salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. We are okay to talk in language of both works and law because the Bible does. The Bible does. Christians were not made to just be lawless people. We are to be people who love the law of God. John Piper writes this, God does the decisive work of taking out the heart of rebellion and putting in the heart that loves the law of God. That is the glorious truth of having the law written on our hearts according to the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 10. So God does the decisive work of taking out, of, taking out the heart of the rebellious heart and putting in a heart that loves the law of God. So the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is the new covenant is that we will love the law of God in a way Israel didn't love the law of God. We'll find it a joy to be obedient to the Ten Commandments and the, command, and the, and the commandments of God that we see in the New Testament. I've mentioned many a times the word antinomian because I think it is prevalent in our modern Protestant gospel. Antinomian is just anti-law. Nomos means law in Greek and anti is, uh, is against. So we are antinomian gospel. The antinomian gospel is dangerous. <clears throat> we'll find Protestant evangelical, good, reformed pastors who will laugh at sin. Who will talk about the person they're witnessing to being stuck in adultery and laugh about it. I'm not going to name these pastors, but they are well known, guys, we would read. Or who have watered it down and won't call the wicked, wicked. Or call people victims in their language, rather than breakers of the law. When we come to the new covenant, we are declaring that your heart is going to be changed from hating the law of God to loving the law of God. It is our great joy to be obedient to God's law. 2 Corinthians 3 may help us a bit more says, therefore, 
Having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the, at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Well, of course, there's a lot in that, and we truly don't have much enough time to unpack it. But let me point out a couple of things. Israel's rebellious hearts meant that they couldn't see the beauty of the law. And that was the veil that was over Moses. So Moses comes down from receiving the law. His face is literally glowing. And Israel is unable to look at him. The reason he is glowing is because he's been in the presence of holiness, righteousness, someone who upholds the law. And they put a veil over his face. And this became the tradition that whenever the old covenant or the law of Moses was read, they would put a veil over their face. Because we aren't righteous to uphold the law. We can't see the beauty of it. But now when we turn to Christ, the same law is a beauty and a delight to us. Because our hearts have been changed to it. Notice at the end that when we read the law, we're beholding it as a mirror of the glory of God and are being transformed into the same image. We're being transformed into what? Righteousness according to the law. Our righteousness doesn't come by doing the law. Our righteousness comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we are being conformed to the image of a man who has been obedient to the law. We're being conformed to righteousness. Our heart's not rebellious. We don't, we don't read the law and hear that it says that homosexuality is a sin and hate that. We should love that. Because God... Law is a joy for us to be obedient to. Or that men and women are different. And that husbands and wives have different roles. A rebellious heart rejects those things. But the heart that is a part of the new covenant loves them. Because our heart has been removed. And a new heart has been placed in. We can't really go by this passage without turning to Hebrews 10 because both Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 are commentaries on this very passage. They quote it, uh, quote quote Jeremiah 31. In Hebrews 10 is one of those hard passages that we must wrestle with as New Covenant members. It says... For if we go on sinning, uh, sorry, picking up in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Who is this referring to? Is the question we first have to ask. Well, clearly it's a church member. Hebrews is a sermon, uh, most likely preached to multiple different churches. It didn't have non-Christians there other than those who were among the church but appeared to live in hostility to the law of Moses. Whatever it may have been, if you're in the Corinthians church, it was suing one another. If you're in the Corinthians church, it was adultery of the worst kind. It was interacting with cult prostitutes. And of course, in Corinthians, it gives way of dealing with these things. Discipline this person. Call their sin out. And if they don't respond with one person, go to them with two or three. And if they don't respond with two or three, bring the whole church to them. And if they still don't respond, don't continue with them. Get rid of them. Because... What they are doing is blaspheming Christ and profaning the blood that He made them righteous with. Can we see the weight of our deliberate, willful, continuous sin? And I'm not talking about the fact that we are sinners every day of our life. We we have sin in us. That's a reality. I'm talking about a deliberate willful disobedience to obvious commands of God. We may at times, every day, every day we will sin and every day we must confess that it, it, is, it is sin. But the day we stop confessing and the day we start acknowledging that divorce is okay and sex before marriage is okay and drunkenness is okay and Drug use is okay and all these things that God clearly in His Word says is evil. The day we start indulging in those things is the day we profane the blood of the covenant and outrage the Spirit of grace. The new covenant is not like the old because we have the law written on our heart. The old had rebellious hearts and therefore if there are rebellious hearts among us, we should do as the Scriptures tell us to do and purge the evil from among us. Through grace and patience, but when there is still no confession and repentance, we should remove them from our midst. Because we aren't blaspheming the blood of goats and lambs like the Israelites did. We're profaning the blood of Christ. The holy God among us. Saviour. So when it comes to sin in the church or in the new covenant 
It's dealt with even more harshly than what we see in the Old Covenant. But there's another way that Jeremiah tells us in verse 34 that's different. So the first way Jeremiah tells us that it's different is that we are are law-loving hearts, not rebellious hearts. And the second way that we see, and our last point, is that we are a multitude and not a remnant. Jeremiah, at the start of his writings, stated that all have gone away. Every prophet, every priest, and every king, from the least of them to the greatest, have turned from God. And then, in 34, he says this about the new covenant. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. What happens from the old covenant to the new covenant is we are going from a remnant to a multitude. In the old covenant, it was remnant theology. If we look at, and if we could do this, we can't, but if we looked at Israel and the the people we know from the Old Testament, how many of them do we feel had faith in Jesus Christ and therefore were saved? Well, we know that Abraham, Noah, uh, we know Lot was, surprisingly, um, but it's not based on his works, it's it's in, in Christ. David, uh, we know these patriarchs of the scripture definitely were, but, but many, it seems that many were not. Many did not have faith in Christ as Abraham had faith in Christ, in the future Christ. So we go from a remnant theology to a multitude theology. What, what Jeremiah is saying here is that they will all know me. He's speaking in hyperbole as he was in the beginning. Because let's be honest, when Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6 that every prophet, every priest, every king, from the least of them to the greatest, had fallen away from God. Well, wasn't he a prophet? He didn't, fully believe, he didn't actually believe that he himself had fallen away. He knew that he was in Christ. He knew that Isaiah was and Ezekiel and the prophets that would come after him. He's speaking clearly in hyperbole, and here he is also speaking in hyperbole. But what he's telling us is that unlike the old covenant, which was remnant, The new covenant is going to be a multitude. Judah and Israel are coming back together as one nation. And not only just Israel, but all the nations are going to be blessed through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Once again, that is what the book of Acts is about. The nations coming back to God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry wrote, there, will be, there shall be an abundance of the knowledge of God among all sorts of people. And, there will have an, and this will have an influence upon all good. For those that rightly know God's name will seek Him and serve Him and put their trust in Him. All shall know me. All shall welcome. All shall know me. All shall be welcomed to the knowledge of God and shall have the means of that knowledge. His ways shall be upon his ways shall be known upon the earth, whereas, <clears throat> whereas for many ages it was only known in Judah. So right now when Jeremiah is writing, God, Yahweh God is, is known by the people of Judah alone. And, and among the people of Judah, not many of them are 
as we see with Jeremiah, not many of them are faithful. Jeremiah is, it's hard to see how many were faithful, but Jeremiah looks to be one of the only ones. But what this tells us is that when the new covenant comes, God's ways shall be known upon the earth. He will spread abroad and people will come to know His law and His righteousness and His Savior. We sing it in our psalm, Psalm 110, we've been singing. We sing that Christ is going to have dominion and the knowledge of Him will be so so spread abroad that kings will bow down to Him. The covenants uh, have promised from Abraham onwards that the nations will come back to God and here in Jeremiah 31 it confirms that a multitude will know Him. When we get to Revelation, it's a multitude from every nation, tongue and tribe and language that are singing praise to the Lamb of God. So saints... Take courage in Jesus, whose blood brought us a new covenant and who expels the rebellious heart and puts in a law-loving heart. We are a part of a multitude. And that multitude is growing every day, as we see in the book of Acts. It's growing every day, even if we don't see it in our nation. It is definitely growing because we are not a part of a remnant. We are part of a multitude. Let's pray. Well, Holy Father, we thank you for this new covenant that you had promised long ago. In fact, it sat in all eternity past and has been working itself out through every generation for all of human existence. And Lord, we have been in that new covenant for 2,000 years and we give you great praise for that. We praise you for every soul that has bowed their knee and had their rebellious heart taken out and and a law-loving heart put in. We pray for our church today as we are now the visible church here in this time period and We don't know what is your plan for the church uh, in our life, but Lord, may we be faithful, law-loving, righteous people who purge sin from us, confess regularly, knowing that you are righteous and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We pray, Father, that we would see the multitude, even if we can't see it in our own backyard, that we would live like we're part of your kingdom and not like we're part of the kingdom of earth. We pray, Father, that you'd give us great courage and boldness to be those who sow leaven of righteousness in our nation, our towns and cities. And we pray, Lord, as we know we'll be certain that the coastlands and the Gentiles will bow their knee to you, King Jesus. Amen.